Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to today's episode of Rao Pal Real Vision. Larry Fink of BlackRock talked about it in the last cycle too, because they put some stuff on Bitcoin on their website that had the most ever hits on their website in BlackRock history. That They've been all working on this. Everybody from Goldman Sachs to JP Morgan to BlackRock to Apollo to, I mean, you name it, they're all involved. This content is brought to you by Linktu, which makes private equity investments easy. Linktu is a great platform that allows you to get equity in companies before they go public, before they do an IPO. Within their portfolio includes crypto companies, AI companies, and fintech companies. Some of the crypto companies you may recognize include Circle, Ripple, Chainalysis, Ledger, Dapper Labs, and many more. If you'd like to learn more about Linktu, please visit the link in the description. Welcome back to the Thinking Crypto Podcast, your home for cryptocurrency news and interviews. With me today is Ralph Powell, who's the co-founder and CEO of Real Vision, also the co-founder of Exponential Age Asset Management, and the founder and CEO of Global Macro Investor. Raul, uh, absolutely great to have you back on. Great to be here. Looking forward to this. Well, the last time we spoke was in 2021, and things have certainly changed uh, from a macro perspective, from a crypto perspective. And I want to set the table here. Maybe we can start with macro. Um, where do you feel we are at in the QT, quantitative tightening cycle? Are we in the, at the tail end? Will the Fed pause rate hike soon? Yes. Um, my view is that the whole global business cycle, including the crypto cycles, driven by the debt refinancing cycle. So if you go cast your mind back to 2008, 2009, we had a global reset and people didn't really realize at the time what it was, but people were looking for a reset that nobody had to pay debts or something of that form. But what actually happened is they said, nobody needs to pay interest on debts. Mm. So everybody set interest rates to zero back in 2009. Since then, every major economy refinanced interest rates at um, every three to five years. So we've got this four-year cycle that happens to be the same as the Bitcoin halving cycle. And we see the economy, what happens is, as you get later cycle, inflation picks up, interest rates pick up, the economy slows down because the economy really doesn't grow fast enough to pay the interest payments. So cut forward to today, where we are is a position where Interest rates have gone up a lot because inflation went up a lot because of the pandemic. The economy is slowing down. And now the payments, the interest payments are due from the pandemic from three years ago. And those payments just keep accelerating. And we've seen the bond market get very unnerved by this, by the amount of issuance that needs to go on to pay all of the interest on the debts, the previous debts, plus the new debts. So at some point soon, the Fed will have to stop quantitative tightening. We saw something similar back in 2018. End of 2018, the bond market blew up. That time it was actually the repo market, but part of the bond market blew up. And the Fed kind of started saying, okay, we're going to stop raising rates. Then eventually, several months later, they stopped doing QT and eventually cut rates. So I think we're in the similar kind of zone where the Fed have stopped raising interest rates. And soon they'll either have to stop the bond market, bond yields rising by something called yield curve control, or the inflation falls fast enough that they've got the cover to start cutting rates again so that they can roll these interest payments at a lower level. So we're at that phase where actually the most, the bulk of the, uh, the downside of the economy should be playing through in this quarter or so. But inflation should be continuing lower for a long period of time because inflation, for example, is driven by two things. One is the short end, which is the stuff that moves a lot, like commodity prices and the dollar and stuff like that. The other side is stuff like rents and wages. They're really lagged. And those things take a long time to slow down. So what you tend to see is you tend to see a fall in inflation, which we saw, this kind of sideways period where commodities start pricing in the other side of the 
business cycle. And then eventually you'll see inflation continue to grind lower over time. So that's what I think is going to happen. So we won't see anything but disinflation going forwards. And we'll probably see continuing weakness from the labor market. So again, that gives the Fed an excuse. So I think everything starts to change in Q4. The other thing that could happen is if the yield curve stays as it is, we could see some of the banks blow up. You know, we almost saw Metro Bank in the UK blowing up. Um, and we've obviously seen a lot of the banks in the US under pressure. Right. So that whole scenario, I think, is all in Q4. So I think we're at the point where liquidity starts coming back into the markets, which is something we've all been waiting for. So it sounds like you're saying there's going to be a hard landing. Uh, we saw a bit of it earlier this year with, uh, you know, these banks having some issues. Um and they're going to have to start the money printer again and sometime in Q, uh, Q4 or next year, they start the money printer again. Exactly right. Exactly right. Now, I don't think it's a very hard landing. I think it's a relatively mild recession. Um, but for all of us, the market's prices in last year, you know, the crypto market was down 80% last year. The NASDAQ was down 35, 38% last year. So the markets have been trading on the forward-looking part of the economy. So everyone's like, well, the economy's slowing down. Why is the stock market down, not down you know, 30% right now? Well, it, it happened last year. And so what I'm now seeing is my forward-looking economic indicators saying, well, the bottom in growth will happen sometime in this quarter and then should start picking up afterwards. So the markets have been trading that. That's why it's been such a good a good start to a year crypto spring for example has been going on so if i look at you know bitcoin's up 68% and solana's up 130 that's a pretty good start to a year we forget that because we feel miserable because it's still so far below all time highs but right. that's how the cycle works and it's been forward pricing this for a while yeah Rao, i love that concept because i i you're probably the first person i've heard say that that markets are forward looking and things are usually priced in, but we miss it. We're, we miss the in the moment, and we're always looking at, hey, what about the all-time highs that took place here? So I, I love that, and it got me to think differently about the markets. Yeah, I think people get very confused by that. Now, markets aren't always as forward-looking, but I think the market understands that recession equals more cowbell, as I say, you know, more stimulus. So they start pricing not based on where the economy is today, Normally, they, they'd be maybe three months lead indicators on the economy, but they've been a lot longer, as far out as a year. I mean, don't forget, most of the markets, the NASDAQ and crypto bottomed in October. ETH was actually earlier in June. So they started seeing the change in the liquidity process back then. Um, and again, people are scratching their heads because they don't realize why. Mm. Now, Raul, we have uh, rural conflicts happening and potentially war another war starting um do you feel that is also going to help ring the cowbell because they're going to have to print money to fund these wars uh globally and who, who, who you know I, we don't know what else is going to happen do you think that contributes to it as well look at canada we don't know the situation and how it's going to play out in geopolitics but for sure the more the us relies on its military the more money it has to print. And it just doesn't have the money to do this. So the only way of doing it is printing money. So, you know, stimulus can come in a number of ways. It could be war. It could be protecting the bond market. It could be protecting the economy and jobs. We just, or it could be protecting the banking system. We don't know, but we know that the economy basically doesn't function without some expansion of the balance sheet because the US economy and most of the Western world is too far in debt to cover the interest payments via GDP growth alone. So, Raul, a hard question for you, and this, you know, probably needs a lot of data, and, and I know you and the folks there are doing some great insights. Are we headed for an Argentina? You know, how, how long can they keep kicking this can down the road, especially here in the United States, at least? It seems like they're going to just keep doing it, but how does that, I'm thinking about my daughter's future, you know, and, and how, what type of world she's going to live in. So there are two main outcomes I see here. One is that, that they just, they just lose control of the whole system. Mm. So, so let's go step back and say, okay, how, how does this play out? 
you either have to cap interest rates, which is called yield curve control, but then you're printing currency to do it. The Japanese are doing it and your currency weakens. So that becomes problematic in its own right. It's doable for periods of time. They did it in the 1940s and 50s for a significant period of time. And the Japanese have done it without massive negative consequences. Yes, their currency is weaker, but that means they can export more. So it's it's not been terrible for them. If they don't do that and you keep increasing these interest payments and you keep increasing that, then, then you've got a real problem on your hands. Then that's the worst of all worlds. But I look at it and think, okay, GDP growth is what covers the debt payments. We've got the, the government in debt um, over 120% of GDP and the private sector in debt over 100% of GDP as well. So somebody needs to pay for that and that's economic activity that does it. And if GDP growth is driven by three factors, one is population growth, one is productivity growth, and the other is debt growth. So the debt growth, we kind of finished. All we're doing is increasing debts to pay interest on the previous debts. So that game's over. Population growth, well, most of the world is now slowing down in terms of population and many areas have gone negative. And immigration policies are tight because you know there's um, not enough work for people overall. So that means that the only thing you've got left is productivity. So how do you make the economy more productive so you can grow GDP again to pay these debts? Now, that's what happened in the 1940s and 50s. There was, you know, they rebuilt America then, right? That was the great part of America with everybody getting a fridge and a car and a television and all of that. But this time around, the most likely outcome, that productivity comes from technology. So we've seen the rise of AI. We'll see the rise of robotics, genetic sciences, um, cryptocurrencies, um, big data. There's so many areas that we can see massive growth. So productivity has a potential to increase dramatically, but not yet. It takes time for this. You know, we're just starting to use AI. We don't know what it's going to do. We know it's massive. We know it's probably the biggest thing maybe to have happened to humanity since learning how to split the atom. And it's, it's of that order of magnitude because we can now scale knowledge infinitely. Right. This is a, you know something we can't get our heads around, but that's what we've just unleashed here. But the other part of the equation is energy. So productivity is really driven by how much output you get from a unit of energy. Mm. So if you look what the Western world is doing, in fact, most of the world is doing, is they're trying to find new energy sources by putting massive stimulus in to incentivize people to, to cheapen the cost of electricity. Now, could that be nuclear? Will it be green? Will it be a whole mix of stuff? Yes, and we're seeing all of these come lower in cost. So let's say we do have a larger energy breakthrough over the next 10 years. And energy goes from, if I look at the inflation-adjusted price of oil over the last 60 years, it's been about $40. Now, if we get that down to $10 and productivity goes up 2x, you've got this massive multiplier. Mm. And that can change the game for everybody. Um, particularly as the baby boom, uh, the baby boom population dies as well and leaves the kind of population, you end up per capita GDP rising. So my actual view is we will be saved by growth, by human ability to drive forwards humanity, society, and the economy. But that may sound utopian. There's obviously a lot of downsides that come with technology as well. Yeah. But the other side is, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they lose control in the interim. We don't know. But I would give it a kind of 65% weighting that productivity solves this. But it's going to take time and it's going to be tricky um, versus 35% of something much worse happening. Or it'll be a combination of the two, yield curve control plus a rise in productivity, which was the 1950s. So you're maybe seeing another industrial revolution, but this time with AI, blockchain, crypto, and so forth. Yeah, I call it the exponential age. It's the nexus of all of these things getting to adoption effects all at the same time. You know, we all understand how disruptive crypto is and how much productivity can unleash from the financial system and another a number of different ways. But that's just part of the equation, along with AI, robotics, and all of the other EV 
um, space, all of this stuff. You know, if I'd have said to you 10 years ago, oh, by the way, some private bloke is going to be going to Mars and he's also going to put up a, sat a ring of small satellites of 40,000 satellites and give people Wi-Fi around the world, you'd have said that's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And now Starlink is everywhere. You know, it's like things are moving faster than we can comprehend. And these things are all connecting with each other because AI is driving the robots. You know, if you look at what is a Tesla car, it's a robot with AI. Right. You know, so that's why this acceleration of things, the exponential age is a really, really big deal. Mm. Yeah, it's it's very exciting. Uh, like you said, there's probably going to be some downsides and um, maybe the path to that is going to be a bit rough. But once we get going, um, kind of like what happened in the early 1900s, the automobile, and that led to the airplane and yada, yada, right? Uh, exactly it'll right. Pick up speed. Yeah. Um, now, what are you, how are you, I don't know if you can share this, but how are you personally trading the crypto markets right now? Are you accumulating and hodling for next year for the Bitcoin halving? What's your strategy right now? So my strategy, so I learned over time. So I first started investing in Bitcoin 2012, 13. Um, I bought it at $200. And I said, listen, this is a 10 year bet. And I think it's worth, yeah, I did a calculation on stock to flow and said, I think I wrote the first ever macro strategy piece on valuing Bitcoin and that became very well known at the time. I said, listen, this could be worth a million dollars, but let's assume I'm an idiot by 90% and discount me down to a hundred grand. So I said, look, it's a $200 asset that could be worth a hundred grand. That's going to be the best investment anybody's ever going to make in their entire lifetime. So I bought it then and I sold out in 2017 at about $2,000, which was much earlier than I should have done because I got confused over the forking and all of this stuff. And I didn't trade my plan, which was you just hold on. I'd already had a 87% drawdown. I was like, fine, I don't care. I'm treating it like an option. But then I sold out into that rally and obviously went up another 10x from there. Um, and then I bought back in, in April 2020, and I probably bought Bitcoin at six and a half thousand. And I thought, great entry. And then I've been long ever since, you know, I switched between Bitcoin into ETH, own some other assets as well. But I look back and I, it, on paper, it sounds like I traded well. I sold out in the big rally in 2017, bought the sell-off in, in 2020. Mm. If I'd have just held my original position, I'd have been five times better off. Mm. I'm like, and if I just used that long-term log trend and every time it gets to the bottom of the log trend, if I'd have just added, I'd have been 25 times better off. So I'm like, okay, we have to think about these long-term trends in a different way, particularly these logarithmic you know, exponential trends. So this time around, I decided I would just do nothing. So I just held everything. And I started buying, adding to ETH and Solana in June, and then again in October, um, and then again in January. So that's all I've done. Uh, and then I've done a bit of switching as I've started to look, okay, what do I think will outperform in the cycle? You know, I bought a bit more Solana um, versus my ETH, but but that's it. So I don't trade, I don't do anything. You know, I used to try having a basket of, of crypto, but really what you end up with is a bunch of shrapnel in your wallet that you don't care about. So I'm like, listen, I'm just gonna keep the focus bets on the things that have the highest probability. You know, Bitcoin, ETH, Solana, I'm pretty comfortable with those bets. Um, you know, I own some some XRP. I own some other bits and pieces. And again, I'm I'm relatively comfortable, but they're less. They're not as big as as the other bets. Now, historically, um, you mentioned that you're more bullish on ETH um, due to network adoption and the capabilities of ETH with smart contract technology than you are of Bitcoin. But obviously, you're holding both. You're diversified. Uh, are you still more bullish on ETH uh, for this upcoming cycle? Um, versus Bitcoin, yes. Um, just generally speaking, all markets follow the same kind of risk curve. So let's say you're coming out of recession, usually what happens is treasury bonds do well because interest rates have been cut, that kind of stuff. And then what happens is investors want to take more risk. So they might go into corporate credit and then junk bonds and then emerging market junk bonds. 
that same cycle actually appears in crypto. It's exactly the same cycle. Mm. So what happens is early stage, crypto spring, nobody's sure, they buy the safest asset, Bitcoin outperforms. Then liquidity starts coming into the market, they start getting more comfort, they move out into ETH and some of the other larger caps. And then once liquidity is flowing, everybody's feeling confident, it really flows into the, into the alts. And so that's, that's exactly the process by which I think it works and will continue to work in this cycle too. Mm. Now you mentioned Solana I, and I hold Bitcoin, ETH and Solana as well. Obviously Solana had a lot of connections to FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried and so forth. Are you worried about any risk, you know, as things continue to unfold with FTX with the trial and much more? Look, I think we know how much is held by the kind of FTX estate. Mm. So it's a known known. Can you have, you know, much like we've seen with Mt. Gox stuff in Bitcoin, will you see, you know, occasional periods of liquidation where, of course, but there's nothing we don't know. But what we do know is there's a lot of activity on Solana. There's a lot of people building. There's some great projects. The speed of Solana is, you know, indisputable. And then we've got Firedancer coming um, at the end of the year into next year, which is a complete and utter step change for blockchains. Mm. Um, so that goes, that takes Solana's potential TPS from 65,000 to 1.2 million. Okay, that's crazy town. Yeah. So we've got an already bullish story of a blockchain that survived, right? Much like ETH survived in 2018. You know, it was down 97%. Solana was down 97 and a half, very similar. Um, but what's come out of the other side is a very strong community, particularly in the developer community, the applications layer and all of that stuff. And Tolly's proven to be a decent, high quality leader and thought leader, been very reasonable, you know, um, very conciliatory, not tr non-tribal. And I think that's that's appealing to people. And I see Solana as, as really one of the one of the only other chains that really has is looking at the mass market adoption of cryptocurrency. You know, different chains have different purposes, I think, or narratives, but that's Solana's. And and if the uh, fire dancer goes well, then okay, that becomes a, a big deal. So that's why, you know, I'm very bullish on that because as you know, each wave, the, the larger tokens do less well each time. Yeah. Because they all, they have more holders already more is priced in, the economic activity just becomes a rate of change game. So the rate of change of ETH was the big one for the last cycle of the major tokens. For this one, could it be Solana? Maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but you know that's, that's my idea here. Of course, there'll be tons of others that do 100X. I'm just not good enough to figure out what those things are. That's too difficult a game. So I just play in that very big bucket and just think, uh, how do I allocate amongst those? Um, what do you think the narratives will be for the next cycle? And I'll give an example. In the past, it was, you know, Bitcoin to hedge against COVID and all the, in, well, the money printing that took place in COVID. In addition to it was DeFi summer. Do you believe it will be AI and the ETFs? I actually think it's going to be everything, everywhere, all at once. Mm. So what I mean by that is I think there's several layers of adoption that is being built by teams right now. One is the finance system, payments, right? We're seeing everybody from, you know, all of the payments platforms to stable coins, you know, that there's a lot of payments architecture, CBDCs, who's gonna go first, India's building, it's out, Singapore's building one, China's building one, the Europeans wanna do it, the UK wants to do it. So we know that's coming, that's all on blockchain. And then we're seeing the rise of the institutions building money mark, tokenized money market funds, people like Franklin Templeton. Mm. And stuff like Firedance and Solana may be giving opportunities for the finance system to use it in broader ways. So we're seeing the finance system get involved. The finance system itself is going to be investing in the space. So we're seeing pension funds. I just interviewed the guys from Texas Teachers, for example, you know, they're they're investors in the space. They were pioneers. We'll see more of that. Um, I think 
Stable coins continue to grow. It's a fractionalized, it's basically a tokenized euro dollar, means anybody in any country can get access to dollars. So that's a very big deal, considering 87% of world traders in US dollars. So that continues to grow. Then I think we see the, um, the, the further applications of NFTs. Mm. So NFTs right now we know is digital art, which was the proven use case of that you can create digital scarcity on a blockchain. So therefore, in an increasingly digital world, not everything goes to zero in value because we can make anything digitally in infinite numbers, including with AI knowledge. So what we're going to do is create some scarcity. So that was what the art movement was. PFP showed about community in Web3. But NFTs are basically contracts or deeds in an electronic world. So I think that's ticketing. I think that's insurance contracts. I think that's real estate. I think that's a lot of things. So I think we'll see more use cases. DeFi itself. DeFi, we saw the blow up of CeFi. So we understand the fragilities of trying to build a CeFi system on an 80 volt asset. So in DeFi, I think it's splits. So I think we get more attention to DeFi, but it's splits. One is institutionalized DeFi which has KYC AML because they can't use it otherwise. Right. But once they do that and everybody's working on that, then we'll see massive liquidity provisions from the people who already provide liquidity to financial markets, banks, you know, big super funds like Apollo and stuff like that will start providing liquidity and the big hedge funds to the lending markets in crypto via DeFi. So that's the money markets essentially. But we'll also see the more kind of traditional crypto native side of DeFi continuing to develop, you know, the Aves of this world and, you know, the, the makers and all of that stuff continues. And then the derivative exchanges, DXDY, Deribit, all of this kind of stuff. So, and the final part of the equation is I'm seeing still a lot of brands and cultural communities interested. So that's sports, music, fashion, um, entertainment um, and I think all of those will grow into the space once they get through this you know everyone's a little bit insecure about the market right now and nobody's got much money for marketing budget but I think we'll see the rise of that so I think all of these come together this time because I think most people did the work in the last cycle then the cycle um, you know the cycle died off but I think most people have teams web3 teams uh, across all of finance to big brands and they're ready to activate. They're just waiting for more liquidity to come back and a bit more certainty. So I think the narratives will be broad. Mm. Sure, there'll be some breakout narratives. The other one is gaming. You know, that's the other one a lot of people are waiting for is how gaming fits in. So there's a lot of narratives coming, and I think they'll all come together at the same time, which will make it, I think a lot of people will have the light bulb moment this time around. Oh, for sure. And Raul, so oh, and we get the monetary printing as well. Right. Yeah. And, and Ralph, you know, earlier this year, I don't know what happened, but all of a sudden BlackRock said, we want a Bitcoin spot ETF. And then that line grew around the block. Then Charles Schwab, Citadel and Fidelity launched an institutional crypto exchange. PayPal launched a stable coin. Was this the year of uh, the tipping point being hit of institutional adoption? Well, people forgot that Larry Fink of BlackRock talked about it in the last cycle too because they put some stuff on Bitcoin on their website that had the most ever hits on their website in BlackRock history. That They've been all working on this. Everybody from Goldman Sachs to JP Morgan to BlackRock to Apollo to, I mean, you name it, they're all involved. Obviously, Fidelity have been pioneers. Franklin Templeton have been pioneers. So they're all ready. And it seems that it has been decided that I think Gary Gensler, to take some political heat, has said, fine, I'll approve a Bitcoin spot ETF. And I think, you know, BlackRock being the benchmark name to come into it has helped tremendously. And I think we'll get an ETH spot ETF as well, because he needs to be somewhat conciliatory because he's screwed up so badly in what he's done so far. So I think he'll take some political pressure saying, I'm not trying to stop the space. I'm just trying to regulate it. And look, BlackRock are now in the space and we're in safer hands. Isn't that amazing? So, you know, I think that's how it goes. Um, and that also helps because that's going to bring in the RIA networks and others, give them something they understand, which is an equity that they can put into a regular portfolio 
but this equity has the kind of exponential upside that crypto has uh, without the complications of the futures ETFs that just don't reflect the underlying. Yeah, you know, Raul, I, I have a family wealth advisor and uh, you know, I've been talking to them about crypto for years and now they're like, dude, because <laughs> they're seeing the news and it's like, uh, it feels like a flood of capital is going to come into the market. So hard question for you. Do you believe the ETF will be approved or ETFs will be approved before the halving or after having? And I know sometimes it takes time and I look at the gold chart, the capital isn't flowing right away like the next day. You know, what's the lag there? And So it... So I think it probably gets approved this year, but I don't know. I have no edge in that. Um, and it's really a matter of price, right? If you'd have launched a Bitcoin ETF in October of last year, you would have had zero buyers. Yeah. So it's a matter of price. So the moment the narrative starts picking up and the liquidity comes back and people have got some money to invest again, look, nobody's got any money right now. Everybody's skint, um, you know, Everyone's had a tough time. It's got no recycled gains because everything's below all-time highs. But once that starts happening, money will flow in. So let's assume January happens. Well, usually by this stage in the crypto markets, we should start hitting crypto summer by summer of next year, you know, from, from sometime after about April. And I think that means that now the channel is open and people can take money in. So as you rightly say, there's a lag because the markets aren't, re you know, the market narrative isn't ready to bring in billions and billions of dollars. But if the if crypto does its crypto thing, and by kind of Q2, Q3 of, of 2024, the markets are starting to rip, you know, interest rates are coming down, liquidity's in the system, people are making money, Oh yeah, we'll see. You know, tens of billions of dollars coming into this. So, Raul, what is your uh, all-time high for Bitcoin and ETH in this upcoming cycle? I'm not going to do that game anymore <laughs> because you know you've seen it right online. Yeah. It just become you just get beaten up. Yeah. People just say, "Well, you said as if it's a promise right. or something ridiculous." So I just say, "Listen." Bitcoin did 3x its previous all-time high in the last cycle. Does it do that somewhat less because, you know, as you get more maturity, maybe it does less? ETH? Well, maybe ETH does three times its all-time high like Bitcoin did in the last cycle. Um, so that's kind of how I'm thinking about it is versus all-time highs. I think the space probably ends up in the end closer to a $10 trillion asset class than it is a trillion dollars today so is there a 10x from the space possible is it a 5x instead maybe but you know i don't really think in terms of where it gets to in price it gets to where it gets to you just need to be in it for the ride mm. um now Raul, you mentioned DeFi earlier and you know institutions are going to get involved in DeFi, but we've seen a lot of exploits and one could argue we are in DeFi 1.0 when do you think, which iteration do you think we, we're going to solve some of these issues? Because the exploits seem like they're having a, happening every month. I think a lot of the exploits are with the smaller ones. Mm. Um, you know, while there's many that have been running for a long time, mm. you know, that have had less exploits and, and less issues, you know. Um, again, it's things like MakerDAO and Aave and stuff like that. They've been going for a long time. They're kind of proven entities. But it's the new ones that pop up, that offer super high yields with a new smart contract that's not been tested. Suddenly the wallets get drained. So I think over time, things probably go to the larger players until some new breakthrough in whether it's technology or ways of doing things plays out. Um, you know, DeFi space is very difficult. I personally don't use it because I'm comfortable with the risk if I'm buying a cryptocurrency and I put it in my ledger wallet, I know the risk that I've got there. I've got the, the, the risk of something happening with my ledger or my seed phrase, and I've got the price risk. But once I start earning yield, particularly if I'm not doing you know native staking and I'm giving it to a third party to stake or whatever, well, now I've got another risk that they blow up or my money gets drained. 
So then you're adding incremental risk. Are you getting paid enough for it? Is that 5% enough that you could have your wallet wallet drained? I don't, I don't think so. Not for me. For others, it is, but not for me. Hmm. Um, well, speaking of exploits, um, obviously last year was tough. Uh, you had these CFI exchanges, FTX, Celsius, and many more collapse. Uh, right now, Sam Beckman for each trial is happening. You know, any thoughts on that? Do you feel the market is going to mature beyond this? I see a lot of exchanges doing um, uh, Merkle tree audits and, and and proof of reserves and so forth. Do you feel we're going to be able to turn the corner on this? Well, this is a Darwinian game and it's survival of the fittest. And if you step back and say, in the Western world, who is the fittest? Well, Coinbase. Yeah. Right? It's kind of a winner takes all for them right now. Yes, there's other players, Kraken, you know, there's crypto.com, but there was a lot of, you know, we don't know how bad they, you know, they probably got pretty close to the edge at some points. We don't know. Binance is a whole different thing. Um, but, you know, if I look at, for the West, I mean, what we've done is cleaned up a load of shit and ended up with Coinbase. Hmm. And Coinbase has proven themselves. I mean, they're an incredibly well-run organization. Um, and Brian Armstrong has been an incredibly good leader as well. So I think, okay, that's that's fine. Now, we obviously want more choice than one super giant. Um, and we do have some choice, not enough yet. But, you know, let's see what develops over time. I think there'll be, you know, we've seen this institutionalized um, uh, exchange that people are talking about building. Let's see what other people do within this. Um, but over time, I, I just think it's the survival of the fittest. And that's probably a good thing. Mm. Yeah, um, I, I I think additional regulations are needed. Uh, I know there, what Sam Beckman-Free did was not so much crypto related as it, it was like a financial crime fraud and things like that, commingling. Um, but, you know, we're, right now, Congress is trying to figure out crypto regulations. A couple of bills got marked up in the House. Uh, there's one in the Senate. Um, you know, are you optimistic that maybe next year, uh, we may see some sort of crypto regulations pass. I think it's either going to pass through the courts, mm. you know, and we've seen that already happening. So some of the more egregious overreaches get ruled out by the courts. But in overall crypto regulation, look, it seems to be political for some unknown reason right now, and nobody really understands why that is. Why has it become... Maybe it's about the fragility of the financial system itself that is what they're trying to protect here. But what I do know is we've seen the US make these mistakes a few times in the past. So after the US came off the gold standard um, back in the 70s, they had a restricted capital controls because they wanted to protect the dollar. There was these free flowing currencies. Nobody knew how it worked. So the UK said, well, people need to exchange between currencies, and they started the global FX market, became the biggest market the world's ever seen. Mm -hmm. Then the US became protective over its banking system and said, well, we don't want to be the lenders all the time. We don't want to be involved in international lending, and they restricted lending. The UK set up the Eurodollar market, became the largest market the world has ever seen, which is the offshore borrowing and lending of US dollars. The next part of that became in the late 80s, um, the derivative market started. The US had a stranglehold on futures and options. But OTC derivatives started with swaps and then other stuff started. And the US banking regulation didn't allow um, them on the balance sheet, so they restricted regulatory capital. So the UK changed the rules, as did the EU, and the swaps market started and the $1.4 quadrillion derivative market came out of the UK. So if we step and look at this, here's the US stumbling again over protecting its own banking system and financial system and its dollar supremacy. The UK is the most likely disruptor. And if I grew up in the UK in the um, 90s, that wave was all the US investment banks and US asset management firms based in London. Mm. Uh, Goldman's main office was London, not New York. Now the headquarters is New York, and they're listed in New York. So if the US screws this up, Coinbase's main office will be in London, as will 
A16Z crypto, as will everybody, and London will create the regulation required to make it global. And London has the trade linkages with Singapore, Hong Kong, the EU, Switzerland, the Middle East. And that whole architect and the Cayman Islands, which is where most of the funds are based. So that whole architecture is already in place for the UK. So the US has a history of screwing these things up or dragging its heels, but somebody else will take it. So the, the US, sure, individuals will still be able to invest in crypto, but can you build a larger industry around it? That's the battle that's going to happen. So either the UK, the EU and others take it, or the US smartens up faster. And that's going to be a political battle. Now, next year is an election year, so. Hmm. It's going to be tough, yeah. Um, and Raul, you know, to your point, we saw Hong Kong do a 180, obviously under the control of China, embracing crypto and Web3. Uh, there's a lot of sovereign wealth funds in the, in the Middle East and so forth are popping up and investing. Um, and it seems like there's al almost a geo-macro-political battle with crypto specifically, and there's other things happening. But all of a sudden, the U.S. is, you know, being very strict, and then these other countries are opening up. Is that... It seems like game theory is playing out here. Of course it is, right? If everyone sees a trillion-dollar market and the U.S. is fumbling the ball, they'll take it. Mm. And it's a truly international market. This is the only market outside of foreign exchange where it's the same product everywhere in the world trades for every single person. Now, foreign exchange is actually pretty difficult if you're in India or you're in the Philippines or you're in Brazil to get hold of dollars. But crypto is, you know, Bitcoin is a Bitcoin is a Bitcoin. It's the same everywhere in the world and everyone's got access to it. So they, everybody understands how big this is and how big blockchain technology is. So you've got the first mover advantage. There's a competitive war going on about capturing this market. Um, the, I, I think China closed. But then what it did is issue its CBDC it kind of understood where all of its money was because it's got a closed capital account and it needs to see where its money goes. And then it kind of reopens it via Hong Kong for international business and they can monitor their pipes. I think India will do the same because India's got a partially closed capital account. So I think they're going to, in, well, they're, they're implementing the CBDC and other stuff right now to make sure that they know the money in their system so that they can measure capital flight and that kind of stuff. Um, so... I, they're all working on moving towards this. I think everybody understands, you know, I spent some time with Sopnendu Mahanti from the Monetary Authority of Singapore, who's the chief fintech officer. He's like, look, we're all working together. The Europeans, the Singaporeans, the Swiss, the UK, everybody. It's only the US is not working with everybody. So everybody's kind of working together under the BIS, um, but the Americans aren't. But Raul, is there... This is a hard question. Is there a shift now of prosperity and wealth innovation almost going to the East away from the West and the United States, which held that uh, mantle for a while? It, it seems like that's what, what's happening. I don't know if I'm off base here. Um, well, they seem to be faster right now. That's for sure. Although the Europeans were reasonably fast considering. So, and the Swiss were fast. Um, but I do think it's a broadly split polarity world. It's a Binance versus Coinbase world, mm. right? And I think both sovereign states have a vested interest in both of those two because they get to control the asset class. Now, Binance is a lot bigger because it deals in a lot more territories. And so it, if China, if theoretically China has some involvement in Binance, in the same way that the US can tap the shoulder of Coinbase, then, then the Chinese understand global capital flows in a way that they couldn't do before, which is a, it's a superpower. Mm. Um, and the US will probably do the same. So I do think it is bifurcating into these two different worlds. Um, and Asia has been faster to move yeah. um, overall. Does it remain that way? Because don't forget, the real capital base is the United States still. Yeah. Um, speaking of CBDCs and going back to what we initial, initially talked about with monetary policy and kicking the can down the road, do you see potentially CBDCs being used to help fix a lot of the monetary issues we've had historically in human beings and fiat currencies? We can't help ourselves. We have to keep printing and 
the system we were in where you can program that money and it could be used in certain ways and we can tokenize gold and reserve assets maybe bitcoin as well where it's it's more accountable and there's more transparency uh, look I, I know the libertarian side of the crypto markets hate cbdc's <laughs> but i'm a pragmatist and when we saw what we did with transfer payments over the pandemic which gave it to everybody yeah it was stupid but you can be surgical in what you do um you can also you know we have a terrible rich poor divide yeah can you use cbdc's to offer different rates of interest to different types of people can that help people in ways that we can't do with this current system so i think for a number of reasons it's actually quite powerful and it can help address some of the massive imbalances that we face but it also comes with the downside which is control although my argument is how many people actually use cash i literally use cash for one thing which is the valet parking at one of the hotels down the road that's it i don't use cash most people don't so they would complain all day on twitter about it's you know the the surveillance state and cbdc's i'm like well you're using a credit card that gets reported to the government should they want it use a bank account you don't use cash for most of your payments um and in addition you're shouting about it on twitter where you're doxed and the government can go and find out who you are or you're on facebook or you're using youtube or you've set up an email account i mean like we gave up privacy a long time ago and the government control you by shutting down your bank account shutting out of the system almost instantaneously so i just think that battle got lost but i do think there are both positives and and still big negatives to come from cbdc's and even if they start with honest good intentions governments always get more restrictive over time which is why it's very important to have this private sector money um because we need that freedom because governments can't be trusted over time yeah it's a great point we at least have an alternative this time around bitcoin e a bunch of different networks so it's more decentralized um i know we're coming up on time so a few more questions i'll let you go um going back to gary ganser and the sec taking a lot of losses uh when the ripple situation xrp intrinsically not a security obviously depends on how it is um offered um grayscale taking a loss there they're suing coinbase i don't think that's going to go well um what were your thoughts on the outcomes of these uh lawsuits and do you think gary genser has much time in office uh or he's going to get kicked out well once you start conflating politics with legal um with legal precedent that's when you realize that's when you start losing cases so they're doing it for politics and the court is throwing it out for the right reasons which is this is not legal so i think there's a bunch of these i'm sure the sec will win a couple here and there but they're not going to win these big cases i mean i've always said the sheer number of smart people and the amount of money in this space that is focused on these issues is gigantic the government is up against something much bigger than picking off an investment bank you're picking off people who are super motivated by what this space represents and where it's going and the people in the space are literally the smartest people in the world so they don't go to fight without knowing that they're coming with a bazooka to that fight while well, the SEC is treating it like it's a bunch of cowboys they have no real understanding of who they're up against you know this is a cultural phenomena they're trying to fight with people who are highly motivated to win. Mm. Um, now let's wrap up with some personal items on your end. You started a new YouTube channel. Can you tell us about that? Yes. I wanted, I mean, look, I'm so lucky like you, I get to talk to amazing people. And I wanted to tie together where I think the world is going and wrap it into my own learning journey of the people that I learned through. So, you know, the things I'm really interested in is macro, that's my background. I, I understand that business and I've been in it for 30 years. Crypto, I've been in that for 10 years. And this exponential technologies, which I think are all coming together, which is what we talked about. You know, this productivity miracle, the complex macroeconomic times 
and new answers coming out of stuff like crypto. Mm. So the journeyman, so if you go to uh, YouTube, look at Raoul Powell, the journeyman, that's me going down that journey. And I'm going to be flipping around, speaking to different people, weaving these themes together. And then I'll also cover stuff that's interesting to me, whether it's art history or the wine market or whatever it is, because, you know, again, it's just my learning journey. I just want people to come and join me on that, peer over my shoulder, get involved in the conversations that I'm having and learn something new. That's awesome. And also a real vision. There's some new updates, right? Uh, I, I remember it. Yeah, there's there's a couple of big things happening. One is um, we've got on the, I'm not sure what date this is coming out, but on the 12th and 13th of October, we've got a festival of learning, which is a learning event. The, the way that people are going to succeed in the next bull market is to not make the mistakes of the last. Mm. And the newbies need to be educated. So we've built a, uh, what we call the festival of learning online. It's free with Ledger. And we've got the biggest names helping people to understand how to position for the space, how to think about security, how to think about investing, how to just think about the space overall. So that's free. So go to uh, realvision.com forward slash festival. Join up for that. There's a bunch of giveaways. We've got a Ledger Quest, which is a gamified education course we're building with Ledger. And there's a whole bunch of other stuff around that where you get proof of knowledge to show that you've taken the quest. And I think people owe it to themselves to educate themselves. We've all got to get this right. So we're doing that. And also the fun part of it is we've built an entire new platform at Real Vision. Mm -hmm. So before we were just videos, now we've got everything from pricing, charting, AI tools. So you can ask the AI questions about the content, questions about finance and crypto in general. It'll give you all of the answers to help augment your knowledge. We just want to help level the playing field for people with knowledge. We've got this incredible new Real Vision network tool, which shows this spinning map of the world of all of our members. And we've got members everywhere from Sierra Leone to Kenya to New York City to, you know, Uzbekistan. I mean, it's unbelievable, the Real Vision members. You can contact people, chat with them. There's going to be chat groups, all of that kind of stuff. So as part of the Festival of Learning, you'll get access to that new platform as well. So that's... Um, so it's something amazing, and there's a freemium version of that. So yeah, realvision.com forward slash festival, and everything will reveal itself. I love that. And Raul, like I've said many times, I've learned a lot from you and uh, the Real Vision content. So I'll be there. <laughs> yeah, enjoy. I mean, there's. I mean, I'm just looking at the name of people there. Obviously, myself, Ian Rogers, and Pascal from Ledger. People like um, who else is there? Artists like Fuck Render, um, Ovi from Rec Guy. People like Keith Grossman from MoonPay, Scott Melker, Brian Selkis. I mean, just everybody's going to be there. So everyone's going to learn a lot, have some great conversations, have some fun as well. Awesome. Raul, absolute pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much. Great to see you as ever, and I'll see you soon. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. 